Hello, my name is Neil O'Toole, and I'd like to welcome you to this podcast, which is the latest in a series of podcasts by the Younger Parkinson's Alliance. Our vision is to create a world where the aspirations and challenges facing younger people with Parkinson's and their families are understood, respected and supported, enabling them to lead active and fulfilling lives. This podcast today is about medication. I'm joined on the panel by Dr. Annette Hand, an Associate Professor of Complex Long-Term Conditions, as well as being a Parkinson's nurse. I'm also joined by a number of my Parkinson's colleagues, Emma, Kerry, Nick and David. Given that the subject of this podcast is medication, we would like to make clear at the outset that the contents of this podcast reflect the experiences of a number of individuals who have Parkinson's. Parkinson's disease is a complex condition which affects everybody differently and the content should not be construed in any way as presenting advice to any individuals who have Parkinson's and may be listening to this podcast. I'd like to go first to Annette. Hi, yeah, thanks for inviting me. My name's Annette Hand. I'm a nurse consultant and I work up in the northeast of England and I've been looking after people now with Parkinson's for about 22 years. I'm also the clinical lead for nursing for the Excellence Network and I also have another role with the University of Northumbria as an associate professor there, both teaching and prescribing and medication and also with research with Parkinson's. Thank you, Annette, and pleasure to have you with us. Thank Kerry. You. Hi, I'm Kerry Hartman. Um, I live in Shrivenham, which is in Oxfordshire, and I was diagnosed with, with uh, Parkinson's um, when I was 56, which is uh, four years ago. Um, I was a uh, school business manager at the time, and I found it hard to keep the job going, but I did keep going as much as I could. And I've now um, created a friendship and support group within my local area called Parkers Pals, and um, we all help each other get through this. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Emma. Hi, everybody. I'm Emma Riley. I was diagnosed in 2016 at the age of 51. I was a childcare social worker for 37 years. And um, I now run a local Parkinson's group for the South Asian community in Leicestershire, which is where I live. Thank you, Emma. Welcome. Nick. Hi, I'm Nick Cole. I live on the sunny south coast. uh, And I was diagnosed uh, almost six years ago now. Uh, I'm a registered nurse by background and still work full-time in the NHS. Uh, Yeah, it's me. Right, welcome, Nick. And finally, David. Good evening, I'm David Allen. I'm trustee for Parkinson's UK in Scotland. I was diagnosed in 2011 at the age of 49. I've been presenting with symptoms for six years prior to that. I was living overseas at the time, and that's what led to me returning to Scotland. And this year is where I live. I'm now, in addition to being a trustee, a full-time volunteer for Parkinson's UK. I run a Parkinson's UK cafe. I set up a singing group, a dance group, a Tai Chi group, and various others. Thank you, David. Well, thank you for making the time to join us today. We'll start with the uh, the clinical side, if I may, Annette. Um, it'd be great to hear from you a little bit about the NICE guidelines in the UK as they relate to Parkinson's disease perhaps a little more, little more about the prescribing competency framework, as well as um, the individual nature of Parkinson's disease and how it presents differently in, in different individuals. So over to you, Annette. Okay. Thanks, Neil. I've been prescribing now for about 16 years, and when I first started prescribing, there weren't any really guidelines to tell me what drugs I should be using in which order. And it was very much left up to me as an individual clinician to kind of work that out with the person I was looking after. 
Things have changed slightly over the last few years. So we've got NICE guidelines in Parkinson's and NICE stands for the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Now, these are national guidelines that have been produced by experts in the field and they take the best evidence there is out there that we've got on anything at all. So there's lots of evidence now about Parkinson's medication and drugs that we should be using. So in 2017, when they reviewed those NICE guidelines for Parkinson's, they actually changed the guidance they have with Parkinson's medication. So even before I start prescribing for somebody, I have to think of several things, even you know, before we look at the drugs that are available. The first thing is the individual symptoms. As Neil said, everybody is different. I've done this job now for 23 years, and no two people are the same. People present differently have different symptoms, have different priorities and worries they have regarding their symptoms. And it's really important that I, as a practitioner, understand what those individual symptoms are and what bothers people the most. I also have to understand other, other conditions that you might have. So very few people just have Parkinson's. So lots of people might have other conditions, whether it be heart or diabetes or anything else at all. So it's really important to understand what other conditions you might have and how, I, and how those are treated. And even again, they might, you might not have a condition, but you might be taking other medication or supplements that you get over the counter or from the internet or from your local supermarket. So all those drugs I really need to know about and understand about, because if I'm prescribing a medication, I need to make sure there's not going to be any kind of polypharmacy or interaction between the medications you might be taking. So it's really important you talk about any medication, not to prescribe stuff, but anything else that you might buy over the counter and from anywhere else with your clinician and with your prescribing person. It's also really important to understand your lifestyle and your treatment goals because I need to know what you want to do. I want to know what you'd like to get out of the medication and what's most important for you. If you're working still, then it may well be that you don't want to be taking medications lots of times a day and then once are the options what you want. But there are other people who want to have activity at certain times. But again, everybody kind of have a different lifestyle or different patterns of the day. So it's really important to understand what it's important to you and what you hope to get out of the medication. I also have to talk to you about what the potential harm is for the medications, but also the benefits of the medications, so you clearly understand those. So even before starting medication, it's really helpful you to go and have a way and have a look at those. And I always signpost people to the Parkinson's UK Drug Treatment and Parkinson's booklet. That's a really nice booklet. You can go away and have a look at it in your own time, have a read about it, and have a look at the different options that are available to you. So in the NICE guidelines, for anybody who's newly diagnosed with Parkinson's, there are what we call first-line treatment options. And these are the medications that we'd use at the very beginning of your journey with Parkinson's. Um, and there are three different classifications. The first one is levodopa. Um, and I'll talk about these a little bit more in a bit more detail in a second. Um, then you've got dopamine agonists. Um, and the third one, you've got monoamine oxidase B inhibitors. Now, levodopa, this is the gold standard medication, if you like. This has been around since the late 1960s. Um, and this medication really is what we call a precursor to dopamine. So that's the chemical that most people are missing with Parkinson's. So you take levodopa, and it comes in two formats. It comes in a tablet format, which is cocalodopa. That's its real name. That's its um, generic name. It has other brand names you might have heard about, Cinemet or Caramet. Um, so cocalodopa is the first one. That's in a tablet format. Or you've got cobenaldopa, um, and that's a capsule. Um, and that's, um, you know, Madapar is another name you might have heard about. So you'll either take that capsule, that tablet, it'll get into your blood system, it'll get up to your blood-brain barrier, it'll get to your dopamine receptors, and it'll convert itself into dopamine. So it's directly replacing the chemical that people are missing. So it's still the best drug we've got available to us today. It's been around the longest, probably the best tolerated uh, and again, it's got, probably got one of the least side effect profiles to it. So it's a really good drug still. 
Next class, we've got our dopamine agonists. Now, the dopamine agonists have probably been around for like the last 20 years. Um, we had some older dopamine agonists in the past called ergot-derived ones, called cabergoline and pergolide. Um, those, some people still have those, but the main ones that we've got these days are ones probably called primapexil or apenorol or reticotine um, comes in a patch format. Now, the way that the dopamine agonists work is slightly different. So they mimic the effect of dopamine. They make your brain think you've got more dopamine floating around. So they try and enhance that version of it. Um, so very good, because again, they're once a day versions. Um, um, and again, they're very you know, easy to take and very easy to titrate up. Our third line are the monoamides oxidase B inhibitors. So unfortunately, there are a number of enzymes in your body that will break down levodopa or dopamine far too quickly and waste it. So the whole point about taking this medication is that it stops that breakdown too quickly. And it makes the best use of what you've got. So you're still producing dopamine yourself, but just not enough. If that's being broken down by these, these, these enzymes, and you're wasting that. So by taking an MAOB inhibitor, it stops that breakdown too soon. But also when you're taking medications like levodopa, that gets broken down by these enzymes. So again, taking that MAOB stops that breakdown too quickly. So basically, the, tr the three treatments we've got for Parkinson's early on are trying to look at that chemical imbalance that's going on with the Parkinson's. You can either replace it with levodopa, mimic its effect with the dopamine agonists, or you can try and keep what you've got around for longer with an MAOB inhibitor. So the NICE guidelines suggest if you've got motor symptoms, so if you're bothered by stiffness or slowness, problems with dexterity coordination, if you're having difficulties with your movements, then actually levodopa is the best drug there is to solve those symptoms for you, improve those for you, all right? Um, it's not great for tremor particularly. Not everybody gets very good response with tremor, as with any of them. But certainly the NICE guidelines suggest now we should be using levodopa of anybody in any age if you've got motor symptoms. If you've not got motor symptoms, though, and they're not bothersome to you, we can offer you any one of those three choices. So you can have levodopa, a dopamine agonist, or an MAOBI inhibitor. It's really up to yourself about what you want to do. And the important thing is you have a chat with your healthcare professional, your prescribing professional, talk about those different options, what they all do, how they all work, thinking about your lifestyle, your symptoms, your condition, your even day-to-day -day routine and what's best for you. And between you should be working in partnership here to work out what's the best treatment for you and should be fully aware of that. There are particular side effects that they have to tell you about with any of the classes of medications. And that's impulse control disorder. And unfortunately that can happen. And I think we see it about 20% of people that we look after with Parkinson's will have some sort of impulse control disorder. And this means gambling or spending or increased libido or increased kind of like repetitive activities. If you're younger and if you've got a compulsive um, behavior to yourself already, or if you've got an addictive kind of personality, so it may be like smoking or other activities you might have done, you're actually at greater risk then of developing an impulse control disorder with a dopamine agonist. So again, you'll have a frank conversation with your prescribing professional about your lifestyle, about what kind of behaviors you've been having in the past to work out, are you a greater risk then of getting those behaviors on these drugs? Because they can be really devastating, not just to the person with Parkinson's, but also to people who are around them, their loved ones, family and friends. It can have a real impact. And unfortunately, I have seen that over the years. The medications can also cause, for some people, increased sleepiness. Now, this can happen, obviously, um, with any of the medications. We have to warn you about that, particularly if you're driving um, and particularly if you're using, using like machinery or things that could actually have a real impact if you end up being sleepy. The other side effect we have to tell you about is hallucinations. Now, of course, these can happen for anybody with Parkinson's, unfortunately. 
Um, but the medication we certainly know can make that a lot worse. So by talking to you about these side effects, hopefully it opens up that dialogue. So if any of the symptoms do occur, you'll come back and tell us about them. So that's what NICE guidelines tell us. They tell us that for the first line treatment, we've got those three options available to you. If you've got motor symptoms, you should be using levodopa. If the symptoms are not really bothersome to you, you've got any of the choices, and you're meant to have information and written information as well as well or information about choosing what medication to have. For me also as a prescriber, I teach all the time the um, Royal Pharmaceutical Competency Framework. And that's something that all prescribers should be following, not just nurses or um, physiotherapists, but doctors as well. And in that, there's a whole section about prescribing governance, making sure it's safe individuals to take medications. So before you start any medication, it's really important that we make sure we talk to you about what the drug is, how it works, how to take it, potential side effects, the benefits you'd hope to see from the medication, the review process, so when you start taking it, how, who can, who's going to review you? Is that going to be the same person who prescribes it? Is that going to be somebody else? But you should understand who that review process will be with, when it will be, and how it will be undertaken. Is it going to be the phone call or another reviewing clinic? For me, there is no rush to start a Parkinson's medication. You've got time to think about this. And it's really important that this is a shared decision. It's not a decision just done by the clinician saying, all right, I'm going to put you on this without any of that information that goes along with it. Because if you don't understand how it works or what it does, or what the benefits should be for you, then how you know if it's working properly? And often then, often people don't take them correctly. If you don't take them correctly, again, they're not going to work for you and you'll get disappointed with those medications. And then you'll lose heart in that and think they're not working properly. So for me, it's about having a really honest discussion with your prescribing professional. They should be following those nice guidelines about what offering what should be available but also following competency guidelines for prescribing to make sure that you've got all the right information that you need, not only for that bit, but also moving forward for the review process um, and also make sure you've got that kind of safety netting in place if there are problems occurring. There's a lot of things to think about when you start medication. It can be daunting, but certainly the healthcare professional should guide you through that um, and you should be given time to do that, not rushed in one consultation if that's not what's appropriate for you. That's extremely helpful, Annette. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I was particularly struck by your stressing the need for a partnership and shared decision-making with your clinician, um, which is a point I think we'll come back to a number of times throughout this podcast. Um, turning to the rest of the panel, um, maybe starting with you, Nick, um, I'd be interested to know whether you're on medication. If so, when did you first start? Who, who advised you to take the particular medication you're on, etc.? Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Of course. Um, I kind of started on medication fairly soon after being diagnosed uh, and for various reasons I ended up seeing uh, two different neurologists who both uh, advised a different medication which was quite interesting and I got the sense um, that they it was more about their personal preference. They thought the best drug uh, at the time uh, for, for me was that drug but actually uh, going back to what Annette said I unfortunately I wasn't in the, the good position of having that kind of discussion about it, saying what was the best drug for me uh, you know what fitted in my lifestyle and um, I was working full-time and I still am um, I mean I take a drug now currently four times a day which is fine and I, I'm pleased with how it's working but again there's a bit of frustration actually I would have perhaps preferred uh, a once a day tablet that might have been easier kind of to remember and to kind of get um, yeah to get to get used to but um I mean, thankfully, things, you know, the drugs are working fairly well for me so far. So, uh, but that initial conversation, I think, probably could have been better. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you, Nick. Maybe, of course, to you, Hannah. 
you tell us a bit about how that started. Right, okay. Uh, like Nick, I was started very early um, with uh, the, the levodopus cinemat um, and various other medications very quickly because uh, they made me very nauseous. Um, so I now take various combinations of medications, um, primarily, obviously, uh, cinemat, um, but rosagilin, uh, as well as uh, sulfidamide and numerous other medications, uh, Madapar. Um, but the point I think for me has been difficult is that due to me being vegetarian, I think it hasn't helped. My diet has a big impact on these medications and the nausea has been a big issue for me right the way through that I've, and, and the pain in Parkinson's and the pain drugs uh, and the impact they have on the Parkinson's medication and they don't interact very well. So I think, you know, it's all been trial and error. But I'm stable at the moment. That's very helpful as well, Emma. Thank you. And Kerry, I'll just go to you. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, whether you're on medication? If so, how did it start for yourself? Uh, yes, when um, I first saw the neurologist, um, I'd, I'd, like everyone else, seem to have had symptoms of Parkinson's for several years before it was actually diagnosed as Parkinson's. And when I eventually walked into a neurologist's room, he actually said, I know what you've got before we even get any further, but obviously you'll have to have another scan. But I had a DAT scan at the time, which yeah. showed categorically what it was. And uh, it, I wasn't really given a choice at the time. I was in such shock when he told me that I didn't really get a, a much of a conversation with him about what he was giving me and he suggested um, uh, Rapinarol, for want of a better word. <laughs> um, which, to be fair, has been excellent, but I now have to have other things as well during the day. But I wish, as Annette was saying, I'd had that opportunity to have a bit more of a conversation with him at that time, at the beginning. I now have very good conversations with him, and the nurses are excellent. But at that very first initial stage, I could have just done with him, perhaps explaining just what Annette has just explained, which is really categorically stated what it is, and I'm very grateful for that clarity. Thank you, Kerry. Finally to you, David. Interestingly, I had a very similar experience to Kerry. Um, I had been presenting with symptoms for about six years. I was living in Dubai, and it wasn't until I'd had a, a few days in the, on the trot of full body convulsions, I decided to see a neurologist. And I booked in to see a German guy in the Canadian hospital in Dubai. And as soon as I walked into his room, he said, I know exactly what's wrong with you, but let me ask you a few questions first, which he did. And he turned out, of course, to diagnosed me as having Parkinson's. Um, we've touched a little bit on side effects. I'd like to come back to that and throw that open to the panel, really. We've touched on a few examples. Does anybody want to share any other side effects they've had they think might be helpful to people with Parkinson's listening to this call? Yeah, I've been, I get uh, uh, dyskinesia I've been suffering from um, occasionally when I've uh, had to up my meds because I'm... Um, uh, the pinarol, for example, I've been um, experimenting with different levels according to the doctor, with the help of the doctor. And uh, if I have just too much, it makes me so so stiff. So I've now come back down again, and uh, we are experimenting with the cinema levels now to try and get that. But it was it was a major problem. I couldn't actually turn over in bed or get out in the morning. But that is now um, receding, thank goodness. And I do do a lot of exercise, so that is definitely helping me as well. So trying to work along with the medication. So it has been a problem, yeah. 
Yeah, Annette, um, you talked about 20% of people suffering from compulsive behaviour disorder. Is um, dyskinesia also very common? Um, dyskinesia is an abnormal movement. It's too much movement that somebody gets. Um, and that often happens as Parkinson's progresses a little bit more and the dopamine receptor in the brain would become more damaged. They're like storage facilities, if you like. So not only do they produce it, but they, you know, they store the dopamine there ready for it to be you know, um, released as and when you've got movement that needs to have that happen. But after time, your storage production area in the brain just isn't there anymore. So unfortunately, particularly levodopa products, unfortunately, go straight through that kind of center within the brain and then blast receptors. You've got too much movement ongoing. Not everybody gets dyskinesia. Um, when I first started, I think we used to use lots of higher drug, you know, doses of medication, particularly the levodopa. So we did see it more. I think now that we use combination therapies a lot more, so you might have a levodopa that's going there several times a day. Then you might have your MAOB once a day. And they might have a dopamine agonist as well. So having, you know, having the different methods and the different ways that these control your medicate, you know, your dopamine levels is better and certainly helps to reduce the risk of, of things like dyskinesia. For some people, though, you're going to get it, unfortunately. It's, 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 you know, it's a side effect of medication. But for many people, they'd rather have the dyskinesia and the extra movement than not enough movement. And sometimes that's the kind of payoff. There are more medications we can try and use to dampen down things like dyskinesia, like amantadine, but that's yet another medication with another risk of side effects. But again, it's having that frank discussion about what you want with your prescribing you know, individual about you know, the lifestyle that you want to lead and the activities you want to do is really important. And given our particular focus on younger persons, um, I guess by definition, given that those individuals could be on medication for decades, something like dyskinesia could be more of an issue for that sort of population? Um, it can be. And obviously, it can be really tiring and re really wearing. With the dyskinesia, I think because you're on the go all the time for many people, I mean, it can be like running a mini marathon virtually every day. And again, it's about making sure then you're eating properly and your weight's okay. Um, um, again, it can be more in one of those symptoms that's embarrassing or uncomfortable for people. It obviously can cause pain and discomfort. So if you've got aches and pains anyway, then just exacerbate those things. But as I said, it's that careful kind of tweaking around for some individuals and using the combinations that we've got available to us to try and smooth things out. What we're going to try and do is have a nice, smooth motor, you know, dopamine supply. And unfortunately, with Parkinson's, you've got what we don't want to do is have that pulsatile effect. So the smoother we can have it, the better. And the less, hopefully, side effects we've got within that. On that point, Annette, isn't there a danger also of blaming everything on Parkinson's? One of the things I remember, and we, I think we mustn't forget it, is how scary potentially taking that medication is. I remember... Uh, you know, soon after I was diagnosed as you know, a relatively young person of 42 in terms of Parkinson's, thinking I'm going to have to take this tablet, I'm going to have to take this tablet or some tablets for the rest of my life. And I just almost remember standing in the kitchen with that first tablet thinking, right, here we go, this is it. And I think that can be a scary time. You know, we don't know exactly how the tablets are going to affect us, how, how you know, whether they're going to cause side effects and how well they're going to work. So, you know, it's a scary time and I think we need to get as much information and be as prepared as we can um, for that moment, I think. Yes, well said, Nick. And I know, Kerry, you've been talking previously about the sort of pressure on individuals with Parkinson's to, um, you know, to take as much medication as they can to some extent to improve their situation. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I think um, cause I've been trying to sort of maintain my level since I've been on um, medication by not, not increasing it too much. But when I go to the GP, sort of, very much of it looks at what the neurologist says and sort of suggests that perhaps I can 
go up another two milligram or whatever. Well, that doesn't sound a lot, but it makes a heck of a difference. And I've now learnt to temper myself and say, no, I mean, it's very good, my doctor, please don't get me wrong, but I think he just needs to listen to me a little bit more. I'm the one taking it and it affects everybody very differently. So um, I've got a bit more of a dialogue now. <laughs> I'm very lucky in that respect. My GP doesn't hesitate to contact the Parkinson's nurse if he doesn't know anything about Parkinson's. And she's more than happy to fill him in. Yeah, I was just going to say that for me, pain in Parkinson's has been a massive issue. The GPs deal with the pain management far more than the Parkinson's medication. So in terms of my morphine and morphine patches, other medication, the tramadol and everything else, uh, the GPs don't really understand how they interact with my Parkinson's medication. So I think that there needs to be much more your connectiveness between the Parkinson's, the neurology department and GPs in terms of how they manage our medications. Thank you, Helen. Is this something that's quite common, Annette? Um, it is, and it's just trying to make sure that you've got, you know, at one point you've had one person prescribing for you, and that would be the GP. Now, often people have got multiple professionals who are all prescribing different drugs and are looking at people very much in their own little silos, and they're not thinking holistically about what's going on. You know, we know with the pain medication, it can impact on Parkinson's, it can impact on bowels, and can that have an impact on whether Parkinson's medication works. So I think it's just about, again, joining up those dots, you know, and having those conversations from my perspective with those other prescribers, particularly the GP, about what's the best thing, to, you know, what, how can we work together? I mean, what I would say is when I start anybody on any new medication, whether that's they're newly diagnosed or they're later on down the line, I'll always ask them, what do you want out of this treatment? What are you hoping this treatment will do? You know, what are the symptoms you've got now that are really bothering to you that we want to get rid of? Um, and I'll always get people to sit down and write down that little list themselves and then put that list away. We'll start somebody then on that treatment and then we'll review that the next time round. Because it's really difficult if you ask somebody, well, what were you like, you know, a couple of months ago that you started medication for? And often it's like, I can't remember what I was doing yesterday, let alone what I was doing two months ago. Um, so it's really important that we kind of are we, we are realistic with Parkinson's medication. And unless we have some sort of measures about what increases and what improves, then we really struggle to understand, is it really helpful to people? Some people just say, oh, I'm not really sure if the medication is making a difference. I'm not sure it's really helping. And this could be things like symptomatic things. So if you're having problems doing up buttons or zips, or if you're having difficulty with handwriting, or if you're tired particularly, but we can do some objective measures as well. So we can look at, you know, your walking speed. We can have a look at how quickly you can do certain activities that can help to measure that and show that. Because sometimes I don't think we all appreciate the impact the medication can have. And you've got to remember that with all these Parkinson's drugs, for example, levodopa takes at least five weeks, if not longer, to get into your system, you know, to get you up to a proper medication, you know, level. With the dopamine agonist, it can take several months to get there. You know, and for again, for the MAOBI, the Risagiline or, you know, Selegiline, again, that can take a good two, three months to actually get into your system properly. So none of these drugs are really quick fix, but it's really important to understand what you want out of it. Have that little list, and then we can review that afterwards. Um, and everybody should really kind of should do that because that really helps understand, okay, then what's it doing for you? Can we just explore this area of um, managing and measuring symptoms a little bit more closely? Um, just going back to what you said a few minutes ago, Annette, I, I know, for example, to start the ball rolling, I use a Fitbit, um, which is incredibly valuable in monitoring a number of things, including sleep. And it's amazing when you look at your sleep patterns over a six-month period, 
how your your kind of memory is different to the reality and how that compares to what's actually happened. And the reality, just to bore you with my own situation, is over the last three or four years, my sleep patterns have basically remained about the same. Although I kind of think, you know, it's a danger you kind of concentrate on the negative days and the negative nights, if you like, and think they're getting worse. But the data shows something different. Well, that's my example. But does anybody have any others they'd like to share with us? One good example I have, Neil, is um, Parkinson's UK non-motor symptoms questionnaire. You can yeah. download it from their website. It's very much old school. It's a piece of A4 paper, but you can check the boxes, take the boxes of all the symptoms you have had over the last month, two months prior to your appointment with the Parkinson's nurse or a Parkinson's specialist. They can address a lot of these symptoms through medication and the non-motor symptoms are a lot more numerous and bothersome and disruptive than the motor symptoms often. Yeah, that is very helpful, David. Absolutely. Hammer, I think you keep a diary, don't you? Do you want to say a little bit more? Yeah, about that? I was just gonna I was just gonna say, yeah, I keep an online diary because I can't write anymore. Um, and that I just put show it, I take it on my it's on my phone and I just show it to the neurologist or the uh, or to the Parkinson's nurse. And that just sums it up in a few minutes rather than you having to remember everything when you go to your appointment. Yeah, really helpful. That's a good one, yeah. One of the things which I find um, helpful, I think, is, and again, we probably forget about this, is ask, particularly if we live with someone, is asking your partner or husband or wife and saying, actually, how do you think I've been? Because sometimes when we're in, you know, we're the person that's suffering from Parkinson's, we live with it day-to-day basis, sometimes people we see, our relatives, our family, they can they can have a better opinion. They can say, actually, you look better than you did a couple of months ago. That's all, you know, the tablet's obviously working well, or oh, actually you don't look quite so well. I think that gives us a good um, um, impression about how we're doing, what we can do. Yeah, another good tip. Carrie, how about yourself? I, too, keep a, a diary, and um, I've kept it from day one, really, from uh, um, my diagnosis. And I, I draw all sorts of things. I draw pictures and things in there to try my dexterity, the hand, hand movements, and that sort of thing. And it's been incredibly useful, I must admit. And I always write my notes up before I go and see the neurologist or the Parkinson's nurse because I find my articulation when I'm sitting in front of someone is not very clear, a bit like David was saying. But if I write it all out before, I can either hand that over or I can sit and read it. <laughs> you just sit there sometimes thinking, I'm sure there's something else, but I can't remember what it was. So if I don't write it down, um, you know, I'm not going to remember next time. <laughs> just going back to you, Annette, you've heard people's examples there. Do you want to just... Give us your reflections on that. Yes, I mean, lots of people use multiple different methods. So lots of, you know, like yourself, using a Fitbit. There are the wearable technologies that people can use to have a, tra- you know, charting how well they're doing and how well they're moving. There are diaries and on-off diaries that people can fill out. I think for me, it's about, I know that the wearing off questionnaire is really great. Um, it's being part of that process and being developing, helping develop that a long time ago. But for me, it's trying to think about the things that are most important to you. Because the last thing I want to do is have somebody bring in a list of problems and actually going through them, but they're not really bothersome and you get to the bottom of the list or you're running out of time. So for me, it's just about trying to think, you know, before your appointment, having a chat with your partner, as Nick says, it's really important to understand, you know, somebody else that's living with you and seeing you all the time. Um, but sometimes it's also about other people who might not have seen you, you know, recently because, you know, it's such an insidious onset and the progression is, again, insidious. So people don't often see the changes that are happening day in and day out. Um, but also just trying to, you know, prepare yourself before you come into clinic about, okay, then what are the things I want to address? You know, having that control of that appointment, having control about what the things are bothersome to you, you know, um, what the symptoms are that are most, you know, causing you most, you know, 
concern and make sure that those are properly addressed. Um, and again, for me, it's it's not being embarrassed. I know that's a difficult thing to sometimes say, but the amount of people who kind of wall, you do the consultation, they get to the door, they hold the door handle, they go, well, actually, by the way, I've got problems in the bedroom. I've got erectile dysfunction. Now, these are really, you know, important things that happen in Parkinson's, for example. So there are the things that we hear about, and it's just about, you know, being able to talk about anything um, and not being worried about, you know, how that may seem. Um, there are so many, as we said, non-motor features of Parkinson's. There are over 40 symptoms that people can get there. So it's really important that you, you know, you talk about what's the most important for you, no matter what that is. Um, and I know that as professionals, we can talk about a few of them and we'll talk, you know, try and prompt people. But we really want it to come from yourself. And I know sometimes you don't know what you don't know with Parkinson's. Um, but again, it's about asking, you know, well, is this, could this be part of it? You know, um, and again, I think that goes back to understanding Parkinson's itself and what David was saying before about everything's blamed on Parkinson's. That's why if you've got a problem in particular, you know, it's, it's helpful to ask your health, you know, ask your health professional about that. One of the things that I find helpful um, is another way of approaching it. Is quite often when I see my consultant, he'll ask me, um, is the Parkinson's stopping doing you anything you want to do? And I think that's kind of quite a good way of asking it because, you know, if you're perhaps trying to do a bit more exercise, but then you're struggling because your your foot's not working properly, actually, we know how important something like exercise is for us, for our condition. Uh, so actually, perhaps we need to increase our medications. And I think, yeah, asking that question about whether it's stopping you doing anything is a, another good way of um, helping you think about that. For me, I know that we talk about medication here, but this isn't all about drugs. And there are so many things that, that you can do yourself that's really going to make a huge difference to how your Parkinson's is and how well the contr your tr control of your symptoms are. For example, exercise. There's some fantastic evidence now show that exercise really is beneficial to Parkinson's. Your diet. So making sure that you're eating properly and a well-balanced diet, you're not getting constipated because, you know, if you get constipated and unfortunately lots of Parkinson's medication just sits there in your bowel, is not absorbed, is not used properly and it's just wasted. So if you're not active again, that's going to have an impact on your bowel and how your bowel works. Things like, you know, in, you know, fluids. So we know with Parkinson's, it can reduce your blood pressure and lower the blood pressure. We know that all the medications with Parkinson's can again lower your blood pressure. Drinking plenty of fluids, you know, trying to keep up your fluid levels, again, is really important. So there are things here that, you know, simple things that we all kind of think we do but could probably do better that will make a huge difference. And so it's not just about the drugs. It's about the whole package, I think, for me. And it's about doing things that you really want to do and really want to enjoy doing, like Nick was saying, um, and getting your whole, about whole lifestyle. Um, so just remember all those other bits and pieces are just important about rather than just taking the medication on time or regularly. Okay, we'll just talk a little bit about um, something different, which is changes in medication. And that's given us a clear indication at the beginning of the different types of medication available. Does anybody want to say a little bit about the process whereby they've changed their medication, how that came about, how they particularly tracked their reaction to it, any, any negative impacts, etc.? And you want to say anything on that? The only personal problem I've had has been inpatients, as we were discussing earlier with Annette. I wanted the changes to happen overnight or within at least the next two or three days. And they never did, of course. It would always take a few weeks, a couple of months to kick in. Now that I've accepted that and I expect that to happen, it's fine. And I know myself when I wake up in the morning, today's the first of a brand new period in my life because the latest drug change has kicked in, as it were. And oftentimes it's just an extra capsule, an extra tablet of Madapar, for example, 
which was my most recent change. And that's made a huge difference uh, because yeah. I mentioned to the Parkinson's nurse that I had a daily off period from about 6 p.m. until about 7.30 p.m. And I could almost set my watch by it every day. So she had me put on one extra tablet at 3 p.m. I take them four times a day. And within two weeks, it was a very rapid change. The off period from 6 to 7.30 disappeared. Now I'm on right through to bedtime, which is fantastic. Yeah, I think it's not, I agree, David, and I think it's not just about dosage changes, but it's really important for me about timing timing changes. And I find quite often that, um, as many people do, that um, uh, eating food interacts with the medication. I think we yeah. generally know that protein, particularly kind of uh, if you take protein at the same time as taking tablets, it can basically almost negate the effect of the tablets. Well, that's what I find anyway. So yeah. I think really important is kind of is tweaking the times that you take the tablets, and that's had a real positive benefit in me over the kind of recent years. Maybe I could just come to you, Annette. Um, we've heard a, little, a lot about um, the timing of medication, how important that is. Could you just tell us a little bit about that from a clinical perspective? Yes, of course. So um, this particularly is around, around levodopa. So that's your cinnamethyl, your malapar, your cocalodopa, your cobenaldopa. So even though it's the best drug we've got, the problem we've got with these with levodopa is it's short-acting. So basically, a dose of cinnamethyl, malapar, cocalodopa will maybe work about an hour and a half at the most. So a normal preparation tablet or capsule will work about an hour and a half. Now, when you first start with Parkinson's, you'll probably be taking about three times a day. And it should be roughly spread out between five, six hours at the very, very most. And that's because the medication will do its bit and bump up your dopamine levels. But also, you're still producing your own dopamine as a buffer to get you through to the next medication, the next tablet time. But unfortunately, as Parkinson's progresses, your buffer gets less. So you'll take the medication, but then the next time before the next one's due, you'll be aware of a return of some of those symptoms coming back again. Just like um, um, I think Dave was saying earlier on about the return of symptoms at a particular time. And often that's very cyclical. You can look at a pattern for that. And that's if you do a diary, you can see that happening. And the thing is, if you don't take your medication regularly, um, remember, again, a dose of medication takes at least half an hour, three quarters of an hour to start working. Um, so if you're taking it a bit late and then it's got that delayed wearing in, um, you've got that kind of a delayed, you know, response medication. So that's why it's really important when you start off taking it, you try and take it at regular, you know, intervals throughout the daytime. And again, that'll be very much depending on what your routine's like. So depending on what time you get up in the morning, depending on what time you, you know, get first get moving, but that should be worked out with the clinician and with the worked out with the prescribed professional. It's not so important, though, with dopamine agonists. They're once a day, as the MAOBs are, are as well. But certainly with levodopa, taking it on time is really important because um, that means your body gets used to it, but also hopefully, you know, prevent some of these wearing off or delayed on symptoms that, you know, could happen. Early. Kerry, perhaps I could just go to you. I know you were talking to me earlier about this um, subject of having clarity on what medication you're taking should you be involved in an accident, for example. Or, um, yeah, um, that. a paramedic friend of mine um, advised me to download a health app, which I think is available on all phones. I happen to have an iPhone, but it's available on all phones. And basically, you put in there all your medical information, um, and you actually put it as an emergency code on your phone. It, it shows you how to download it. It's very, very simple. It has to be for me to do it. I'm rubbish. Um, and basically, if you're in an accident or you're in hospital and you couldn't speak properly, you can... Someone can open up this app for you. They don't have to have your um, ID to get into your phone. They can just open it up as an emergency code. 
and in there is all your, uh, you can write down the times, what you're on, um, also your blood type, all sorts. It's amazing. Um, he just highly recommends it because paramedics will always check for phones first in accidents to try and get IDs on people. So um, whether it's an accident or you're going into hospital and unable to speak, which sometimes I know we have problems with um, Parkinson's, uh, it helps. It's just something you can show and it, it alerts everybody to what you're on and what, what's wrong with you. And, uh, well, you know, basically it could be more highly recommended by this paramedic. So um, I recommend everybody books for the health app on their, on their various phones. Thanks, Gary. That's a really good tip. Talking about this subject of um, a Parkinson's patient being hospitalised, Annette, um, and the importance of taking medication on time, how is that addressed from the clinical side? Um, it's always difficult, Neil, because often people on the wards don't fully understand Parkinson's or the importance of taking medication on time with, you know, with Parkinson's medications. What I would say to you is make sure that before, if you go into hospital, you've got a clear list of what you're taking and the times of that are really clear. And that's passed on to the doctors. Also, make sure you take a lit, you know, a whole package of your own medication with you, so you've got some medications yourself. Because sometimes they're not on the wards or not regular ward stock. So what you do is make sure you've, if you've got your supply of medication, they, they can still be given to you. We're in hospital. Parkinson's drugs are now classified as critical medications, which means they have to be given on the time that they are prescribed. And that's when it's really important that whoever kind of what we call clerks you in, and that's often a doctor or a nurse practitioner. And those are the ones that will then put the timings of those medications on that drug chart for you, that they're accurate and they're up to date. If there's any kind of question around that, if you think they're not right, make sure that you or one of your family members or somebody else says something to the ward staff that can be changed as quickly as possible. What I would also say, if you've got any problems around that, then please contact your Parkinson's service, special service, because they can talk to the ward staff, get that amended and altered and changed as needed. Um, it is difficult when you've got a ward full of people. Obviously, you know, medication rounds, they are set times. But for somebody with Parkinson's, it's really important they get drugs when they need them. And that's why they are these critical medications. So make sure you take your medication with you, illicit medication, and any problems, raise it really early because then we can do something about it. Thank you, Annette. That's very helpful. David, you wanted to say something? I just wanted to add to Annette's point, um, Parkinson's UK do a very nice voluntary wash bag, which is designed for taking your drugs to hospital in. And it contains various getting on time stickers to put on your drug charts. It's, there's also a laminated cardboard clock to stick on the wall above your bed to remind the nurses of your next dosage when it's due. And there's information leaflets about why you should take drugs on time, meds on time. It's very useful. It's free. You can get it via the Parkinson's website or the Parkinson's local advisor. Maybe even your Parkinson's nurse has some in stock. That's excellent, David. I've not heard of that. That's very good advice. It's very useful. Okay, we're just coming to the summing up stage of this podcast, and I'd like to ask each of you to um, give some tips, really, to those who are listening, maybe those with Parkinson's or those of the clinical um, community. Perhaps I could come to you first, Nick, to get your thoughts on what you might give as advice or tips to, to any of those populations. Um, I think for, for the healthcare community, I think I'd want to remind them that, um, you know, that they have lots of expertise in lots of ways, but we live with Parkinson's 365 days a year, uh, and we know what it's like for us. And as we've talked about already, it's all, it's all very different. So, you know, we're the experts, so make sure you ask us how, how we are. And, um, and we need to be prepared to kind of give that, give the right answer. 
And I think for other people with Parkinson's, I'd uh, want to advise them to make friends with their local pharmacy. One of the things we do have a chance to kind of decide actually find, find a good pharmacy, uh, find a good pharmacist that you can talk to, make sure that you, you know, they, they can work for you to get availability of your medication, that you don't run out. And um, obviously, we know how important that is. Excellent. Thank you, Nick. How about you, Hannah? Any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I was just going to say as a final thought that anybody out there with Parkinson's, do not be embarrassed or ashamed of our illness because that was a big thing for me when I first got diagnosed and asking for help. Please ask for help because this isn't just a physical illness, it affects your mental illness badly as well. So please, please ask for help and join a local group if you possibly can. Excellent. Very well put. Kerry, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, um, backing up what Hema says, really, I've got a local group of Parkinson's people and most of them have said they would not have got out and about unless we formed this group. So it's been essential. And also this COVID lock-in, we've kept each other amused with little phone calls and we met up in the park as a socially distanced meeting. It's absolutely essential that you talk to other people and uh, and get you know make friends. You're not alone in this at all. We're, you know, we're all there together. Thank you again. Very well put. David, final thoughts from you. Yeah, I'd just like to underline Kerry and Hamer's point before her. We're not in this alone. There are lots of people out there and you don't have to endure this journey alone. It's a very lonely place if you do try to do so. Um, I find the local groups tend to bring individuals together because they have Parkinson's. It gives people a reason to, to keep going. For the healthcare practitioners, one tip I would give them is they build on Nick's point. Um, who better to understand Parkinson's disease than people with Parkinson's themselves? It's often referred to as the invisible disease because it's not the first time I've been asked, are you sure you have Parkinson's? Do you look so well? Or you don't look like you're sick? And that's the final word to you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I suppose I was saddened to hear that everybody's experience when they're first diagnosed is not really getting a lot of choice or option. And for me, that's not how it should be. And that's certainly not my practice. If I think we follow the guidelines that are out there, both from NICE and the RPS as healthcare professionals, then actually we do make sure that this is a partnership approach. This is about information sharing, not just about us, information giving. As Nick says quite rightly, you're the expert in Parkinson's. Um, you know, I'm not, you are, because you're the expert in you and how you are and what your lifestyle is like and what you want out of it. And all I can do is help support and guide you in terms of what medications or support or treatments are available to you. So for any healthcare professional out there, um, medication is such an important thing that we get right, but it's a departure approach. It's not me deciding what somebody should be going on. That's not how this works. This is us following guidelines that are there for a particular reason, and that's to make sure that this is, you know, what you want it to be um, and working in, in partnership together. So definitely partnership approach for me. Thank you ever so much. Thank you to the, all the panellists for joining us. And we'll close there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. During this podcast, there's been reference to both the Younger Parkinson's Alliance website and the Parkinson's UK website. I'd recommend that people seek information there. So finally, thank you for joining us on this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. I look forward to talking to you on our next podcast about exercise.